Greetings, and welcome to the latest edition of the AMSSM Sports Medcast, produced in collaboration with the BJSM. I'm your host, Dr. Chris Bigazinski, and I'm thrilled to be joined today by Dr. Matt Fedorik. Dr. Fedorik serves as the Chief Science Officer leading the Science and Research Team at the U.S. Anti-Doping Agency, or USADA. Considered an expert in the scientific aspects of anti-doping matters, he has reviewed hundreds of results management cases while at USADA and provided credible scientific guidance and opinion to resolve many anti-doping analytical and non-analytical result management cases, including the detection of performance-enhancing drugs and the abuse thereof in sport. With more than 10 years of experience in anti-doping and holding a doctorate in pathology and laboratory medicine, Dr. Fedorik also serves as a standing member of the IPC Anti-Doping Committee, the WADA TDSSA Expert Group Chair and Athlete Biological Passport Ad Hoc Working Group. Dr. Fedorik also serves as a co-chair of the Scientific Advisory Board for the Partnership for Clean Competition. Before joining USADA, he worked at the Canadian Center for Ethics in Sport and served with the Vancouver 2010 Organizing Committee for the 2010 Olympic and Paralympic Winter Games in Canada. Welcome, Dr. Matt Fedorik. Thanks very much, Chris. It's a pleasure to be here, and thanks for the kind introduction. Well, we'll start with your recent experience at the Beijing Winter Games. You just returned less than a month or so ago. How was your experience from the standpoint of a U.S. auto officer? Yeah, it was fantastic. Thanks. It was a very interesting games in the middle of a COVID lockdown in China. And the, the best part about the games is obviously the athletes and the competition. And it was a fantastic games and China is, uh, was a wonderful host, and we know the Chinese Anti-Doping Agency well, and they, along with the local organizing committee, the Beijing Organizing Committee, put on a, a, just an awesome anti-doping program and collected a record number of samples on Paralympic athletes. So it was, it was a great to be part of all of that and to oversee the program. I, I was fortunate enough to be able to stand outside and watch some of the competition at the venue. So be in the middle of the action. And it's, that's always my favorite part. Were there any new protocols or technology that you're able to discuss in the field of anti-doping that they rolled out recently at the Beijing Games? Yeah. So the biggest announcement at the Beijing Olympic and Paralympic Games was that they were the, uh, the first games to roll out a what's called a dried blood spot testing and so the traditional blood testing protocol for athletes requires that they get blood drawn through veni puncture or venous draws for both whole blood samples which are used for something called the biological passport and then serum samples are used primarily for growth hormone testing so in addition to that traditional blood testing this is the first time that dried blood spot samples were collected on athletes out of competition and then analyzed for testosterone esters, which are a group of compounds that are obviously high risk anabolic agents. And so that was something new that had never been done before. Matt, you sit on the Athlete Biological Passport Ad Hoc Working Group. Can you describe for our audience a little bit how the Athlete Biological Passport works? And secondly, what impact it's made on the landscape of anti-doping efforts over the last couple of decades? Yeah, absolutely. So many, many listeners will be familiar with direct testing, which is testing for the presence of the prohibited substance in an athlete sample. But 
the biological passport takes that one step further and actually looks at biomarkers of potential doping in athlete urine and blood samples. So the idea is to follow an athlete through every sample that's collected longitudinally over the course of their career and look for variation in those biomarkers, both steroidal biomarkers in urine, as well as hemoglobin biomarkers such as hemoglobin hematocrit, reticulocytes, and some other markers in blood that could be indicative of doping. And, and the benefit of that is it has a huge deterrence value because that passport travels with the athlete over their career. And there's quite a sophisticated database and algorithm that's used in order to understand how an individual varies over time within the, themselves to determine what's normal and abnormal. And we're actually able to bring cases forward, use cases based on these abnormalities after consultation with experts in the field to try to determine whether it's the result of doping or it's the, the result of some kind of normal physiological fluctuation. So it gets pretty complex and some of these cases are quite difficult to argue because athletes bring forward arguments such as my hemoglobin is varying because of exercise or diet or travel. So you need to be able to exclude those things from the arguments to demonstrate that the most probable explanation is doping and you can exclude all those other variabilities. So there's actually been hundreds of cases that have been brought against athletes based on the biological passport and it's proven to be a really effective target testing tool as well for substances that are more difficult to detect, such as urethropoietin, which is a blood boosting drug, which is commonly used in endurance sport. It seems like it's been a real game changer again over the last couple of decades, instead of having hard cutoffs and being able to, even though it's somewhat complex, determine who has naturally uh, variable hemoglobin, for example, versus somebody that may be doping. I think that's a, a really uh, important breakthrough that we've had over the last couple of decades. Along the lines of breakthroughs, orthobiologics or stem cell therapies are getting a lot of attention in the world of sports medicine, and they walk a little bit of a fine line between what is natural and what is performance enhancing. You can make the argument that athletes are using their own blood in these cases to inject around tendons or joints, for, for example, for tendonitis or arthritis. How do you recommend we view treatments such as platelet-rich plasma or stem cell therapies through the lens of anti-doping? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. It becomes quite complex to look at all the different methods that are evolving and, and available to athletes in medicine now. And, and athletes actually are able to use prohibited substance if they obtain something called a therapeutic use exemption. So this is essentially getting permission ahead of time, or in the case of an emergency, a retroactive therapeutic use exemption for the use of a prohibited substance or method. So when we look at these new medical treatments, we really are looking at whether they should be added to the list because they do have a performance benefit or a potential to enhance performance beyond return to a normal state of health, or they have the potential to affect the health of an athlete adversely. And then there's a third category called 
the spirit of sport. So in order for something to be added to the list, it has to meet at least two of those three criteria. And so when we look at orthobiologics, it comes both from a, a substance standpoint as well as from a method standpoint. And so when you're looking at some of the constituents of these products, we need to look at whether they contain exogenous growth factors that may enhance the recovery or the uh, return to a normal state of health and actually heal an injury beyond what would be normally acceptable or normally expected, um, as well as how they're being used from a method standpoint. And obviously, when you look at things like uh, platelet-rich plasma, if you're re-injecting red blood cells into an athlete that are their own, then you may not be increasing their hemoglobin values. But if you're injecting somebody else's blood and you're adding to that red blood cell volume, then that could be potentially performance enhancing. So we look at the methods in a lot of detail and things like PRP are permitted in sport. But then when you consider stem cells and some of these new orthobiologic treatments, we really look at it from a product by product standpoint and are trying to understand the basis for the constituents of the products and how they're performing their functions in the body to determine whether an athlete needs a TUE or whether we can say that it's permitted in sport. I think that's great advice and you anticipated my next question along the lines of what we need to look out for as sports medicine providers that are recommending these treatments for our athletes. And unfortunately, there's a lot of different manufacturers or providers where it may be difficult to know what some of those additional constituent parts are. There may be some additives in there that could get our athletes in trouble. So definitely, I think proceeding with the utmost caution and asking the appropriate questions of the manufacturers of these technologies is really important to keep our athletes out of trouble. Gene doping, as far as we know, is still a theoretical technology, but has already been spoken and written about a bit for the last few years. I remember doing a USADA module for sports medicine providers, I think in the last couple of years, and one of the chapters of the module at the end was discussing gene doping technologies that may be coming down the pike. So there's definitely a push for education already afoot. Is gene doping realistic from a physiologic standpoint, or is this still the stuff of science fiction? It's one of those areas that is really rapidly evolving and more recently with the invention of new technology such as CRISPR-Cas8 and some of these new adenovirus vectors and other technologies that are being developed. You know, fortunately they're being developed to treat really serious disease and, and that's, that's a great thing. What we're looking specifically at is if those treatments can be used to treat conditions that would enhance an athlete beyond a normal state of health to something that couldn't be achieved otherwise. And so when we look at gene doping, some of the targets for gene doping, two of the most prevalent targets, one is around the production of a protein that our bodies produce naturally, which is urethropoietin. And adding to your normal production of urethropoietin will help increase the amount of hemoglobin that is circulating and allow an athlete to carry more oxygen. So that's one particular target that some of the research a number of years ago showed that in uh, cell and in vitro and in vivo models and animals that you could actually turn on the production of EPO 
transiently and, and produce EPO through some of these gene technologies. The challenge is, is regulating that in a safe manner. And it certainly hasn't advanced to the point that we know of that it would be used in an athlete. But we're the World Anti-Doping Agency and the anti-doping laboratories, as well as organizations such as our, ourselves in the U.S., are really interested in this topic. And early in 2021, WADA actually released the first set of guidelines for laboratories to be able to test for an EPO transgene. So this is something that can be done in blood and has been done at recent Olympic and Paralympic Games as being proactive in order to Obviously, not just detection is important, but the deterrent aspect of the work that we do is even more important. So staying ahead of the technology, putting in place tests that are fit for purpose are, are, is really important. The other area which is fascinating, I think, is the regulation of muscle growth and muscle mass. And we know that in particular animal breeds or in knockout animals, we know that a, a gene around myostatin causes increased muscle growth. And certainly this has been a, the other focus of gene doping from a nefarious purpose. Could you locally inject these genes using some type of viral vector or, or other vector and cause increased muscle mass growth in particular muscles in the body or uh, in increased injury repair? So that's the other target that's uh, been the focus of, of quite a bit of research and ongoing research to understand whether that may be possible Obviously, there's a difference between germ cell changes and somatic cell changes. So one of the real challenges is, are we evolving to a point where scientists in perhaps certain countries or nefarious scientists are looking to make gene edits in order to make a higher performing athlete and, and from a, a young age, you know, promote that person to be an elite level athlete. So that's somewhat the, the realm of science fiction at this point, but we need to be ready for those types of things to be happening in the future. I imagine that as a scientist, it must be a great thing to motivate you when you wake up in the morning to figure out these puzzles of how to detect these new technologies. You know, anti-doping sometimes runs up against the value of athlete privacy. For example, elite athletes often have to report to their as to their whereabouts or their location and be available for possible visits from uh, doping control representatives for sometimes hundreds of hours annually. Athletes have also been forced to, for example, urinate in full view of chaperones to ensure the integrity of urine samples. Can you discuss how USADA and other organizations are trying to balance respect for athlete autonomy and privacy while at the same time performing meaningful doping control? Yeah, it's a great question and certainly some of these ethical arguments and athlete privacy and the intrusiveness and invasiveness of anti-doping is top of mind for our organization and really the anti-doping movement as we look to revise rules and, and put rules in place that balance that requirement to make sure that we don't create loopholes for athletes to get through and, and cheaters to game the system, but at the same time being as fair as possible to athletes. Fortunately, I think we're in a place 20 years on from the, the first version of the World Anti-Doping Code that the, the athlete movement and, and the athletes themselves have largely come to accept 
some of these intrusive and invasive processes that are put in place because they want to show that they're clean and they're doing all that they can to make sure that their career, their legacy, and the results that you see um, as a fan or, or as a observer of sport are really true and the, the right person is winning. So by and large, athletes are really supportive of the process and the rules. They understand their responsibilities and, and their role in anti-doping. Could we be doing better? And are we struggling with some, some areas? For sure. As, as technology evolves, there's been you know, added interest around things like geolocalization and, and GPS whereabouts. Could we be using those technologies? What are the benefits and the downfalls of those from a, a privacy standpoint? But as I said, I, I think the processes are in place in order to protect the athlete and protect the integrity of sport. And we get a lot of support. I should also say that one of the, the things that we've seen recently and, and that has led to some of the biggest successes in anti-doping is building that trust with athletes so that they feel comfortable coming forward as whistleblowers to inform anti-doping authorities like USADA when they see doping or no doping is incurring in their sport. And certainly there's been some fantastic successes around that when you think about the uh, U.S. Postal Service investigation, the recent uh, Nike Oregon project cases, and really one of the biggest cases in the world, the, the Russian state-sponsored doping program. Those are all the result of courageous athletes coming forward, trusting anti-doping authorities and giving them information so that we can make sure we catch uh, not only athletes, but the entourage that are aiming to game the system. Along those lines, do you have any recommendations for how sports medicine physicians should approach the individual athlete that maybe is coerced into using PEDs by a state-sponsored program or something along those lines, like they described in the film Icarus? I think that it's hard to know sometimes what to do if an athlete maybe approaches you with this information and how to proceed or how to view athletes that maybe we don't work with directly that may be doing things not because they want to win, but because they're forced to sometimes. We obviously understand that there, there's a real balance between athlete, patient, physician privacy, and that commitment that physicians make to do no harm and to, to keep that information confidential. There are fortunately avenues that individuals can come forward and remain anonymous in order to be whistleblowers. And they also are protected under the rules against sanctions or there are provisions such as substantial assistance and uh, protections against retribution or those types of things for people that come forward and tell the truth. So that's an incentive, I think, for when you see something or you know something to come forward in the best interest of protecting, you know, really the athletes that are doing it right in the sport and, and making sure that all these things can be acted upon in the most appropriate way. And that could be everything from testing specific athletes or their teammates and giving information about when to best test or what to test for all the way to providing non-analytical evidence that can be used to bring forward cases such as trafficking, possession, 
use of prohibited substances or aiding and abetting doping. So if doping is not just one definition, it's very broad. And so we would encourage anybody with information to come forward, know that it's going to be handled in the utmost confidential way and acted upon by organizations such as USADA. Taking this a little bit out of the world of maybe Olympic or elite sports and bringing it into a world that some of us may experience as primary care sports medicine doctors, you've done a lot of work in the world of ethics as well, not only hard scientists, but medical ethics. And for example, I have a theoretical case. Sometimes in our clinics, we're approached, for example, by master's athletes that have questions for us about getting testosterone supplementation, for example, for something that be a, may be a normal age-related decline in testosterone, but certainly looking around, you can see a lot of regenerative medicine clinics that offer these types of therapies. And some of these folks are athletes. And I wonder how, as medical providers, we should approach care of the recreational athlete that asks about the risks and benefits of something that may be a performance enhancing substance. For example, again, the master cyclist that is seeking care at a regenerative medicine clinic and tells us maybe that they're taking testosterone and oftentimes in these community masters races, there's no doping control, but they may also be asking us, what are the risks of taking these things? What's the risk of me going to this doctor and taking testosterone? And I, and I wonder how we should approach that in a non-judgmental way so that we maintain trust in a relationship with our patients seeking these therapies, but at the same time, considering the principles of fairness and safety in sport? Yeah, it's a fantastic question. And certainly it's a real issue right now in, in master's level sport. And, and I think first and foremost, physicians educating themselves on, you know, the proper treatments, being aware of how to properly diagnose and treat those diseases and I know that time constraints are a big uh, challenge for physicians, and sometimes they have really demanding patients that you know won't leave unless they're prescribed something. But I, I think it's really important to spend the time to understand what the underlying conditions are and the reasons for an athlete suffering certain symptoms. And certainly with testosterone, what we see is in, in a lot of therapeutic use applications we get and you know, a lot of recreational athletes are doing it the right way. They contact USADA, ask the right questions, try to understand what requirements they need to meet in order to get a, a TUE for testosterone. But what we see is that there's a focus on treatment of symptoms rather than really trying to understand the underlying etiology of the condition. So a lot of things can affect uh, testosterone in an individual, and that may range from diet to the athlete's weight, how much they're training, whether they're taking other medications. So it really is important from a physician standpoint to educate themselves on what questions to ask and, and make sure they're not prescribing something just for the sake of treating conditions. Or if they're not comfortable, uh, recommending they go to an endocrinologist or a specialist that may be more familiar and, and have the time to go into more detail to really help the athlete in the best possible way overcome those symptoms and the medical condition be treated in, in the best possible manner to keep the athlete healthy. And ultimately, we want athletes to compete, but we need them to compete fairly. And unfortunately, testosterone is one of the most powerful anabolic substances out there. So we're pretty strict when it comes to 
giving out therapeutic use exemptions only when athletes can actually show that they have low testosterone, it's repeatable, and they have an organic etiology that they can demonstrate requires the treatment of that. Matt, this has been a great discussion, and I have one more question or piece of advice maybe to help us end on a uh, positive note. You know, a lot of sports medicine providers are also big fans of sport, and I suspect you might be as well. The regular occurrence of doping over the years, however, has taken some of the shine off of elite sport for some of us. How do you approach being a fan of sport while holding the position you hold, and what advice can you give some of us that may be becoming either fatigued or cynical by what we're seeing with these various doping scandals in elite sport? Yeah, you know, I, <laughs> I, I see the best and the worst of sport. And fortunately, as the U.S. Anti-Doping Agency, we're working every single day tirelessly, not just on the science and research side, but the testing, the education, the communication, engaging with athletes so that they understand how to do it right making sure that we protect their careers and, and their legacy. And I, I think we've made huge headway. It's, it's hard not to be cynical sometimes, but certainly we can only look at what we're doing with U.S. athletes and be proud that we send you know, a clean team USA to Tokyo last summer and to Beijing this past February and March. So we're working as hard as we can to make sure the results that everybody sees on TV are the, the real results, and we're advocating globally as well for the rules to be engaged and, and others to be held to the same standards as we hold ourselves to um, at USADA. So I'm a huge fan of sport, and, and I think by and large, it's, it's fantastic to see the athletes performing at their best. And, and some of the athletes in sports where we haven't traditionally seen U.S. athletes excel are now excelling because of robust anti-doping programs. I truly believe that. So that's awesome to see. Dr. Fedorik, I'd like to thank you and your colleagues at USADA first and foremost for keeping our athletes safe and for striving for fairness in sport, but also for sharing some of your valuable time with us today. And you, the listener, for doing the same. If you're interested in hearing more from Dr. Fedorik and dozens of other leaders in the field of sports medicine, I'd encourage you to join us at the 2022 AMSSM Annual Meeting, which will be held April 8th through 13th in Austin, Texas, with both in-person and virtual formats. For more information, please visit www.amssm.org backslash conferences. We hope that you'll join us again soon for the next episode of the AMSSM Sports Medcast. The views expressed are those of the speakers and do not represent the official policy or position of the AMSSM, Maine Health, or USADA.